For our scripture reading, we turn to 2 Timothy. As we read this, it's good to keep in mind that 2 Timothy is thought to have been probably the last epistle of the apostle Paul wrote that went into the scriptures that it was written shortly before his death. So from the viewpoint that he writes as one who has suffered, who has suffered much, who's been persecuted, who's been thrown into prison, people have thrown stones at him, and now he's writing to another minister, to Timothy. And writing a letter to to encourage him also encourage him to to stand fast there are going to be afflictions there are going to be troubles there's going to be hardship endure the hardship as a good soldier and in that connection he brings up the comforting truth that christ hath abolished death He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to life by the gospel. The good news of the gospel about what Christ has accomplished and the life everlasting that we have in him. And we read this chapter in connection with the subject of Christ's death and also how we are to live unto God that our old man is crucified dead and buried with Christ, that we may offer ourselves unto God a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, living unto him. So we read this, we read chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 
Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, as he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in how many things he ministered under me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning. And the passage that we just read and all of Scripture are the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. There we read. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? By virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, and that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, tears, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord's Day, we understand this Lord's Day is on Christ's death. Previous Lord's Day was on his suffering, his suffering and his crucifixion. And now this Lord's Day is on his, on his death. It brings up the subject of him suffering the agonies of hell directs us to think of the everlasting suffering, the everlasting death that we deserve. 
And then we're directed to consider the separation of his soul from his body, and his body goes down into the grave. And he was buried, he was really dead. He really died. And this Lord's Day then asks the question, if he died for us, why must we die? And we're getting closer to the day of our own death. We also say that this life is nothing but a continual death. Why must we die? And we explain what death is not. It's not a satisfaction for sin. And we also state what it is. It's a passage to everlasting life. Everlasting life. We're mortal. And we know that Christ hath delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. And this is a great comfort to us as we go through the sufferings of this life. And this epistle that we've read serves to bring that out. That the truth that Christ hath abolished death term that's sometimes translated abolished or done away with. That he has abolished death. That he has satisfied the justice of God. And that we have immortality in Christ. That is applied to, well here, the Apostle Paul applies it to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he encourages him that in this life there's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardness. And there may be times where they even put us to death. And yet we know Christ has abolished death. That when we look to the day of our death, we do so, and on the one hand, we, we will miss the ones we love here very much. The thought, of, the thought from the viewpoint of us as we now think of departing from them, as we look at that from this side of the grave, we think we don't want to leave them. But yet at the other from another point of view, we think of the joy that we will have in glory. And as is often stated, people in glory wouldn't want to come back. And we will go to be with them. And knowing that, knowing what Christ hath accomplished, we're to fight, and we're to endure, we're warriors. Now this is spoken specifically to a minister of the word. But this certainly applies to all of us. God chose you to be a soldier. He unconditionally chose you. He gave you to Christ who laid down his life for you. You've been saved. You've been called. You've been saved not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What a comfort that is to us. And that, com that comforting word is declared to us in the gospel. And that's what we consider this morning. We consider it, first of all, under, we consider it under the theme, the abolishing of death. We consider, first of all, Christ's death, then deliverance from death, that he has delivered us and does deliver us, and then lastly, that we are alive unto God 
as is brought out when it speaks of how we are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The abolishing of death, Christ's death, deliverance from death, and alive unto, unto God. <coughs> when man fell into sin, he became liable to corporal and spiritual death. That's a phrase we find in the Belgic Confession. Corporal, having to do with the body, and spiritual death. Now man had a depraved nature. And when man fell, now he had a sinful nature. And he would return to the dust. And he deserved eternal death. Everlasting punishment. When we examine ourselves, we're supposed to consider that. Not only then, but certainly we would say that we don't, our mind doesn't turn to that as often as it ought. We're going to consider our sins and the curse we deserve that we might humble ourselves before God. What do we deserve? And sometimes something happens to us and we wonder, now why me? Why did that happen to me? And then very quickly, it's good for us to turn in our thinking and think, well, well now, what do you mean, why me? What, what do I actually deserve? We've sinned. And the punishment for sin is death. That's the relation between sin and death. Death is the punishment for sin. Many would not admit that. If you were to ask many people, why, why do human beings die? Well, it's just natural, you know, that people die. Has that always been the case? Has it always been the case that human beings have died? And many people would probably say yes, as far as is known. The scriptures tell us that God created man good. Death came into the world by sin. Death is the punishment for sin. And for us to be delivered from death, we needed Christ, we needed the Son of God to die. We've already talked about why he had to be a man, because a man had sinned. So he had to be a real man with a com real, complete human nature. But also he had to be God. No mere creature could sustain the burden of God's wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. We needed the Son of God, one person, the Son of God, two natures, two natures, divine and human, who would suffer and die for us. And that's brought out in this Lord's Day when the question is asked, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, that God's justice might be satisfied, satisfaction could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. By his death, he would take away the cause of our eternal death and misery, namely sin. That's the cause. As we say in the Lord's Supper form, the cause of our eternal death and misery is sin. And by his death, Christ would take away 
the cause of our eternal death and misery, sin. And this Lord's Day directs us to the agonies into which he was plunged. The punishment for sin is death. To suffer in both body and soul. Body and soul. He, Jesus, the Son of God, took upon himself a complete human nature, body and soul, that he might suffer for us, body and soul. And the last, the, when we talk about, sometimes we refer to it as the steps or stages or degrees, degrees of the state of humiliation, his lowly birth, lifelong suffering, his death, burial, dissension into hell. As we mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, when we get to that article, and say he descended into hell. We're not saying that he went personally, locally down into hell after his death and before his resurrection. It may sound like that because we say he was crucified, dead, buried, he descended into hell. And so it may sound as if we're talking about something that happened to him after he died. But that's not the way we explain it. We say this refers, it, when we say that he descended into hell, then our mind is to be on the hellish agonies into which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. And that he has delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. So when we say he descended into hell, we're also to remember he's delivered us from the agonies of hell that we deserved. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then... He said later, he said, Father, into thy hands, at the end, toward the end, he says, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. And he, his real human spirit, departs from his body. As a real human spirit, departing from his body, and his body goes into the grave. And he's buried, that Jesus is buried. His divine nature still was still united to the human, even while he lay in the grave. So that in his, in his soul, he's, he's with, he, is, he has gone to paradise, as he said to the man, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And in his body, and his body, he went into, he went into the grave. And he was buried, our creed say, that he was buried to prove he was really dead. Now, some have questioned that answer. From the viewpoint that you don't bury a person to prove that they're dead. That's, when you know someone is dead, you bury them. You don't look at a person who has died and say, well, let's bury him to prove he's dead. But that question can mean something else. Not that that was the purpose of those who were alive at that time when they buried him, that their purpose was to prove he was dead. It can also mean that in the providence of God, he was buried. It was the will of God that he would be buried and that would be proof to us that he really died. And it is important for us to know 
that he really died. It's important for us to know he really arose from the grave. That's a central doctrine, that he really did rise from the grave. It's of central importance that we know that. And for us to believe, for us to know that he did really die, for us that he really did arise, we must know that he really did die. And our creed here says he was buried to prove that he was really, really dead. And he suffered and died for us. Not for all human beings. And you know that and you confess that. It's good, you know, when times when our mind turns to that subject. Why am I one of the ones that he died for? It wasn't, I wasn't saved according to my works. And neither were you. Saved according to God's purpose. God's purpose and grace. Why do we believe? Because God chose us. Election is the fountain of faith. Proceeds that some believe and that some don't is that some believe is is because is goes back to the fact that if God had chosen them, Christ would die for them, and that's why they believe. And you and I know that, and we confess that. That it's all of the grace of God so that we hear about Christ abolishing death and we know he suffered and died for us. And that one who suffered and died in our place, who abolished death, comforts us that he delivers from death. He died for us, and he delivers us. And we're going to look at that from a number of points of view, how he, the fact that he has delivered us, and what a comfort that is. First of all, we look at it from the viewpoint that he has delivered us from what's called in Scripture the second death. You recall, the Bible does speak of the second death. We read in the book of Revelation of the second death. Like in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 8. Where it says, Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Somebody that continues on in those sins? Continues on in the sin of lying, fornication, adultery, sorcery, idolatry, murder? They'll have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Suffer everlastingly in body and soul. There will be a resurrection of the body, also of the unbelievers. And in body and soul, suffering, the second death. Now God's people are comforted in the same book of Revelation. God's people are comforted that we shall not be hurt of the second death. 
like in Revelation chapter 2. A letter that's written to God's people about the suffering that they will experience. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Thou shalt suffer. Fear not. Revelation 2, verse 10. And then at the end of Revelation 2, verse 10, it says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And then at the end of verse 11, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Shall not be hurt of the second death. Christ hath delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. What a comfort that is. For somebody to go through this life and to know that though they may have some temporal pleasures in this life, that afterwards, when it's over, it's going to be everlasting suffering. Now, of course, unbelievers often don't want to think about that and often even deny that that's going to be the case. And yet that is reality. We know that we deserve that too. We know that we violated the commandments. We're sinners. And we struggle with our own sin. Night and day. What a comfort to know that our Lord has delivered us. The one who has abolished death has delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. Well, then there's also physical death. And the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, why do we, why must we die? I mean, he died for us. So why must we die? And first of all, it brings out that death is not a satisfaction for sin. It's not that Christ satisfied for the most, most, did most, you know, his, he, to the, for the most part, satisfied for us, but there was a little bit of satisfying that was left for us. That's not, that's not the idea. Our death is not a satisfaction for sin. And that's a comforting truth to say to someone that's dying. There's many times when God's people who are dying have their mind on their sinfulness. That's quite something, too, to talk to a saint that's about to go to glory and to see that they are so conscious of and mention their sinfulness. They look back on their life and all the things they've done that they shouldn't have done. I'm such a sinner. And yes, we are. And yet, we're comforted knowing our death is not a satisfaction for sin. Christ is satisfied. He has abolished death. And what death is for us is an abolishing of sin. Not a satisfying for sin, but an abolishing of sin. We're freed from our sinful nature. That on that at that moment, no longer do we have to battle that sinful nature anymore. Well, we look forward to that. And for somebody that's looking back at their life and thinking about their sin, what a comfort it is to say to them, well, it's true. Even our best works have been defiled with sins. And we look back at our life and see all our sins. But Christ 
has suffered in our place. He's satisfied. And soon, you won't sin anymore. What a comforting thought that is. When our mind is directed to that, we think that that's true. It's an abolishing of sin. And a passage to everlasting life. What a joy we have. And then in the body, in the body we sleep. We are said to sleep in the grave. We're sleeping in Jesus. So in our soul we go to be with Christ in glory and in our body we go to the grave. But we know we will arrive. We bury our dead. Even as Abraham was buried, God buried Moses. Joseph, by faith, Joseph spoke about the coming deliverance. Joseph, the son of Jacob, spoke about the coming deliverance from Egypt and gave commandment concerning his bones. And as they came out of Egypt, they brought Joseph's bones. Buried in the promised land. Our bodies will be raised. And we confess our faith. We typically, when uh, we come to the grave, we also confess our faith at that time. And one of the things we say there is that we believe the resurrection of the body. We confess Christ's resurrection. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And we confess that we will be raised. Our head has been raised. We will be raised. And we say that with absolute certainty that we know that's going to happen. And it's also the case that as far as deliverance from death, we've already been spiritually resurrected. We have a new spiritual heart that although on the outside we just look like everybody else, God regenerates his elect people, giving them a new spiritual heart, and spiritually they're alive. Spiritually they have life. As we say in the Belgian Confession when we talk about the Lord's Supper, that there's this bodily life that all human beings that are alive in this life have, and then there's spiritual life that only some people have. We've been raised from the dead. We've been delivered. And as far as our old man, we still have that old man, but sin does not reign, and that's the idea when this Lord's Day says, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross that by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him? Now that one might read that and think that means you don't have an old man anymore. Or your old man, you know, somebody may say, you know, we don't have no longer have a sinful nature. That's not true. We still do. Is our sinful nature still depraved? Yes. You talk about our old man. So then what does it mean our old man is crucified, dead, and buried? So the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. The corrupt inclinations don't reign but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's delivered us from spirit, from bondage. Bondage to sin. 
that we may offer ourselves a sacrifice of thanksgiving, living unto our God. Now we see how that then leads to the subject that in our life we're to live unto our Lord knowing that there will be suffering. There will be suffering. There will be uh, afflictions. Many are the afflictions of God's people. Timothy was not to be discouraged in the sufferings he went through. And as he saw the man who had taught him, and whom he loved, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was now thrown in prison. And very shortly after this, he was going to die. And now Timothy's a minister of the word in Ephesus. And in the difficulties that he would face. And there would be difficulties. There would be hardship. He was to endure as a good soldier. He was to live unto his Lord who had delivered him, who had saved him. Believing the truth that Christ hath abolished death and that we have life everlasting. Which we know from the gospel. Christ has delivered you. And he's told you that he's delivered you. So it isn't that he saved you and then didn't let you know. He told you. He assures you that Christ died for you. He tells you the news. He tells you that you have everlasting life, immortality in Christ. He brings that news to you. That's brought out when it says that Christ hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That news has gotten to you. Christ hath proclaimed it to you. Christ preached that to you. And the Spirit of Christ worked in you faith and continues to work in us. And we know that in this life, it's the will of God that there will be suffering, there will be afflictions, there will be trials. Our faith is tried. God is trying our faith. And the difficulties we face in our own individual lives, some difficulties we face that other people may not be aware of, difficulties we face in our family, church, churches, difficulties God's people go through, God is trying our faith. He tells us the good news. You're immortal. You're righteous in Christ. He suffered and died for you. You are righteous. You're washed. You've been delivered from bondage. Be faithful unto death. Just like that letter in the book of Revelation. You're not going to be heard of the second death. And we hear that, and we're comforted by that, and God also tells us, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. God has given us power. For God hath given us God hath given you. Verse 7. 
God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, power. He strengthens you and me. And of love, and of a sound mind, of love, he works in us to love. And how important it is to bring out that steadfastness in confessing the truth and confessing that truth in love. Genuine love for God and his people. He's given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we're exhorted to be faithful. In this passage that we read, take note of the fact that God makes reference to the fact that Timothy had had a believing mother and a believing grandmother. Timothy was going to, was, you know, when he was reared, all the instruction he would have received in his rearing and how God would use that in the preparation of Timothy for the work that he would be involved in now proclaiming that gospel, the gospel that Timothy had heard, that he had believed, that he had been instructed in. And as he had been instructed In his earlier life, now he was to proclaim that gospel. And how these women, these women had, who were believers, a believing mother and a believing grandmother. And the thought that God uses the labors of a believing mother and grandmother in preparation of children for the work to which God has called them. And Timothy then was also to pass down the word to others. He was told, The things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. Commit that word to others. Is one who's alive unto God, is one who's living unto God to be diligent in that labor and to teach that truth and pass it down to others that may be able to teach others also. And that applies, we often talk about how that applies to the seminary, but that also applies in our home as we're giving instruction in our home to children that would then be able to teach others also. The same truth that we've been taught. And it applies to our schools. The same gospel that you've been taught. The word comes to teachers. That word that you've been taught. That gospel that's been proclaimed to you. Now you pass down what you've been taught. As you apply the word of God to various Subjects, and as you have times of devotion in in school, to pass down to the coming generation, to speak of the promise, the promise of life. The epistle begins with a reference to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Christ hath abolished death. He hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We know he lives. Because he lives, we shall live. May we encourage one another in the difficulties that we're going through. May we talk about what Christ hath done for us, 
May we talk about what the Spirit does in us. May we together walk with our God, cheerfully offering ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, and our Father, we are thankful, O Lord, for the grace thou dost give, for the comfort that we have, and the trials we go through, and the difficulties, the sorrows that we experience in this life. What a joy to know that we have life everlasting. And we know there will be opposition, we know there will be pain, we know there will be a variety of struggles in this life. Grant us the grace to endure hardship faithfully, to be patient, to wait on thee, to remember what Christ has suffered, to remember his death, to remember how he has confirmed the New Testament and the inheritance that we receive in him. May we offer ourselves a sacrifice. May we not live unto ourselves. May we live unto thee. And may we encourage our children also that we're to take up our cross, that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our Lord. May we cheerfully labor in thy service. We're so thankful that thou hast set us free we are so thankful for the life we have in thy son. In his name we pray. Amen.